0: If the buyer is excited about this business because it's 80% termite, and then we go in and it's 80% mosquito, we're going to pick up the phone and call them. That's going to stall the deal. And so you want to make sure that when you're giving those stats up front, there's there's um, going to be consistent with what we see when we dig in.
1: This is the PMP Industry Insider Podcast.
2: Hello, everyone. Welcome out to another episode of the PMP Industry Insider Podcast, where we take a look at what is changing in the industry and take it to the front lines for those that are driving those changes. As always, I'm Donnie Shelton, owner of Triangle Home Services, which has triangle Pest as well as triangle lawn. And with me is the ever present, omnificent, omnipresent, Omni-whatever, Mr. Dan Gordon. Dan, would you like to say it's good afternoon. We are not recording in the morning like we normally do. Introduce our awesome guests, our topic, and our sponsors. If you got make sure it's a checklist there, all three. So just want to make sure that But
1: uh good afternoon. All right. Uh, Dan Gordon, PCO bookkeepers, PCO MA specialists, accounting and business brokerage for the pest control industry. And as always, if you like what you hear, rate us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we are also on YouTube. And also uh Please consider supporting our sponsors. Uh, if you're interested in digital marketing, uh, Colmarch, it's uh, colmarch.com. And uh, if you're interested in uh, an insurance uh, agency that caters to the pest control industry, that's PestSure, visit them at pestsure.com. And uh, today we're going to be talking about invest- how investors look at your company and how to get through due diligence if you plan to sell. and. We've got two very distinguished guests today. First, Ilka Krieger. She's a senior director with Alvarez and Marcel, a global professional services firm. Ilka has over 13 years of transactional advisory experience. And prior to joining, uh, she was part of the advisory group at Ernst & Young, uh, in both New York and Frankfurt. And second is Claire Williams. And Claire is a director with a uh, and as well, Global Transaction Advisory Group. Uh, Claire has over 10 years of accounting and finance experience. And prior to uh, joining a uh, and she worked at um, Ernst & Young as well. And like Ilka, she focuses on business segment services, including pest control, where both have worked on 40 plus deals in the past three years. And I first met these two women in one of the deals that we did for one of the larger PE backed buyers. And over the past few years, we've worked on several deals together. And We've been on opposite sides of the table, each advocating for our own clients and sometimes debating over certain adjustments. But I absolutely have the utmost respect for both of these women and the way that they play the game. So uh, welcome.
3: Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be
0: here. Yes, thank you. Great to be on the podcast.
1: Yeah, so so let's uh, talk about, um, I think. Well, let's jump right in. I think one of the most important questions we can ask from a professional due diligence team is, what does the anatomy of a deal look like? Walk us through from beginning to end and what, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, what people can expect.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So when, when someone's looking to sell their company, they're obviously going to need a buyer. And most often that buyer is going to hire someone like us to perform financial due diligence. So the reason they're going to do that is they want someone to dive into the financials, confirm that financial health and performance of the company before they buy it. Uh, And it's even better if they can find someone to do that diligence who has expertise in the industry. So, you know, as a seller, you don't want an accounting person looking at your business from the wrong lens. You want someone who's going to ask the right questions and kind of know how to analyze your business. For example, you wouldn't want someone who's, let's say, looking at chemical costs or labor trends, but doesn't understand how that may shift if you're more of a termite company versus more of a general pest company. Um, all of that helps us to really that maintain that good rapport. If you're trying to sell your business, just get you comfortable with the process. And with that in mind, it can give you kind of a quick overview of what that process looks like. So we'll typically send over, is as, as Dan's all too familiar, a request list. This is a pretty standard one that Ilk is going to talk about at some point, you know, how that kind of evolves. But you know, it starts out with our list of hey, here are the things we're looking for. A lot of those are gonna be standard extracts from your pest pack or your pest route system, or maybe out of your general ledger, uh, whether that be QuickBooks or something else. We'll gather that data. We'll process it as you give it to us. And all of that will go into this agenda that we're going to prepare. We'll send that to you in advance. It's going to be questions about some of the operational sides of your business and then looking at your financial piece as well. We'll send that. You'll have a couple of days to mull over it. And then we'll schedule a call with you. We'll go through all that in detail during a call. And then we'll have a week or so of follow-ups and that pretty much wraps up the financial diligence process, you know, from a seller's perspective. Now the buyer may do other types of work streams. Like they may take advantage of our integrated approach and hire us to do things like tax diligence or IT diligence or other operational stuff. But usually the financial piece is going to start the process because it typically takes the longest.
2: So hang on, Claire, you made that sound so easy.
1: I've,
2: I've done it's this a happens. couple of times and let me just say the reality here. This is butt pain. Okay. I mean, this is hard stuff. <laughs> it's like, Oh yeah, I'm just going to send over a sheet. And yeah. Like I, I have personally done this a few times and I just remember being completely overwhelmed when I looked at the sheet and some of the data, I didn't even know how to get it, you know? And so can you just walk through like, okay, yeah, I know it's sales, but just what are some things that are on this list and what makes it easy for you guys to view it? Because one of the things that Dan said that I was going to give him a hard time, but I gave him a pass on at the beginning. He says, if you decide to sell your business, everyone's going to sell at some point, right? So it's right. just like, well, if, if if I already know what's coming and I can kind of structure the business or my financials such that it makes this process easy, I would imagine you guys are going to want to see it in this because it's easy to evaluate the business. And that, if, if, even if you're not looking to sell right now, that would benefit you as an owner as well. So what kind of things are on this list that that you guys are really looking at that, that's really important in your mind?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's the starts with the financials, the monthly financial data, monthly P&L, monthly balance sheet. That's the core first thing we always want. The second thing is gonna be revenue by month by service code. So your monthly revenue for your quarterly pest program, for your monthly pest program, for your annual termite renewals, things like that. That's all going to be direct exports out of your system. QuickBooks, for example, on the general ledger side, that's going to be your trial balance or it'll be something out of your pest pack, your pest routes or whatever system you may be using. Those are the basics. And then the details kind of go from there. Like we're going to ask for uh, an estimate of what your dollar amount of inventory is that you have on hand. On average, it doesn't have to be an exact amount. You can say, hey, roughly, I usually have about $15,000 worth of product in the office. But the biggest thing that we want you know your listeners understand is if there is something that's overwhelming our you know emails and phone numbers are on that list just pick up the, the phone and give us a call or shoot us an email and say hey let's talk through this cuz i'm not sure i understand what you're asking for we also don't want a seller to ever spend 10 days creating a report for us or even Five hours or two hours you know we're looking for things that are quick and easy and if it's not quick or easy let's talk about it and figure out a way that we can get 80 percent of what we need with minimal effort on on a seller side that's exactly right i think we we want to make
3: sure that communication here is key right so in the communication is with both with our client and the sell side to really ensure that if there's a question to a request and we often have that when we think about our process we have a kickoff call usually that's with us our client the sellers well, we walk them through the process. We walk them through what's needed. We walk them through the information request list. And then we offer up further calls that, like Claire said, you don't want to redo and reinvent the wheel. We typically work with what you have. And then everything else we discuss over the phone and see where we can find a solution.
1: Um, what is the value or what, the, what are the potential outcomes of, you, of your work going through this? What, what can happen? Good, bad, ugly.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think then the three main areas of value is most importantly, the financial should reflect the accurate picture of the company's operating performance, right? And that includes, for example, the uh, the recurrence of the profit. So looking into do you have more residential, more commercial customers, the service types you're offering, pest, rodent, termites, whatnot. And then there's other things you want to consider as a as a buyer. And these include, for example, the fleet aging, right? How many vehicles do you have? How age are they? How is your employee turnover? How many stops per route do you make per day? So really finding areas for potential synergy and also other commitments such as legal disputes and so on. From an outcome perspective, I think the main outcome we do is to help our client to make the investment decision to buy or not, to help them substantiate the long-term investment thesis. And then as, as I just said, to identify opportunities and to avoid any surprises post-close.
1: So I'm going to go off script already, but uh, (laughs) we've had discussions about revenue recognition, which is kind of interesting, right? So in the industry, one of the trends is to bill monthly and perform quarterly pest control or something thereabouts. And that always seems to be a sticking point. Can you explain how you look at that and uh, how that all fits into the picture?
3: Sure. I mean, I think we have to... uh differentiate between the different services right so I think the biggest one when we when we think about revenue recognition and, and issues and things we find in diligence is termites right so when we talk about prepayments if someone prepays for the year a lot of buyers would recognize the revenue at the time when they receive the cash under gap it's required that you recognize the revenue when the services perform now for termites for example you usually have a once a year you know, service you perform or you have certain follow-ups or the warranty periods so all these things need to be taken into account when determining how to recognize the revenue and very similar with pest control right you can offer a monthly service then recognizing it on a monthly basis is in accordance to gap some uh companies offer it like you said quarterly in in that instances what you should do is really recognize the revenue evenly over the quarter meaning spreading it Having said that, we also know that a lot of the companies are not as sophisticated in their financial reporting. So this is something where we focus, for example, our diligence efforts when we do diligence for our clients is to look at the revenue. And especially when it comes to the termite to ensure that we reflect revenue on a recast P&L
0: in accordance with GIP. And in an extreme example, if you had a customer base or a company that annually pre-billed everyone for services, mm-hmm depending on when their annual pre-bill was and there was high seasonality to that business and they've got more people signing up for quarterly pest service in the summertime or in the springtime or early fall, if they were recognizing all that revenue upfront when they receive the cash, if everyone's prepaying a year in advance, we would see a lot of lumpiness in the PL when in reality there's a service being performed throughout the whole year.
2: Yeah, uh, no, no. that is a sticking point. And I don't know that there's a good answer. From an operation, no. Well, the good
1: answer is uh, no. There's the financial answer, right? But I'm just generally, like, yes. I get principles. that, but I mean, I'll always be on the other side of that, arguing for and advocating yes. for our yes. client. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> But at the end of the day, these two ladies are usually right, and I'm usually. <laughs> so, uh, let's talk about uh valuation, quality of earnings. So, so people know, you know, if if if, if our clients, okay, the due diligence team's going to come in and check our numbers and what and 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 that's and, you know and and see if everything is, is right. But you issue a, a report, a quality of in earnings report. And what tell us about that and the valuation you know what when when they engage you, did you know what are the deliverables and how, how does
0: that all work? Yeah, so our quality of earnings is exactly what it sounds like. What's the quality of the recurring earnings? So what is this business going to look like? What's it going to generate on a go forward basis? And usually the key metric that, that defines that is called EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. And what that does is it takes, essentially approximates the cash profits of a business, regardless of the way it's structured, regardless of the debt financing, anything like that. So that's used to estimate cash profits. And that's ultimately what we get to in our quality of earnings analysis. What then happens is our clients will take that, what we've given them, and then they'll assign a multiple and they'll say, okay, based on our experience in this industry or based on what we've seen, we think we should pay, for example, 10 times as a multiple or five times or 15 times. But just for the sake of this example and simplicity, let's say 10. So if we've come to an EBITDA of 3 million, we say this company has recurring rough cash profits of 3 million, they're going to take that multiplied by the the 10 multiple and say this company is worth $30 million. The reason our quality of earnings is important is if you just take that at face value on a reported basis, that may not actually approximate the cash profits of the business. For example, if a, a seller or an owner of a company puts a lot of personal spend through the business, so kids tuition going through the business or uh renovations to their home property that has nothing to do with the business. Let's say there's a million dollars to that of by that. the way. So we, we never <laughs> <run into that. laughs> so let's say there's a million of that in in that number, all of a sudden, that 3 million EBITDA becomes 4 million, take that multiply by 10. And all of a sudden, that's a $40 million company instead of a $30 million company. And so our goal when Ilka and I are going through this deep dive into a you know a company's financials is to look for things like that, that may change the broader valuation of the company. So, so I, I think a, that's, oh, go ahead.
2: I was gonna say, I have a question about that because, okay, so that's a snapshot in time. Are other factors like cancel rate, like, okay, so there's the quality right now, but then there's this momentum that the business is doing as well, right? I mean, if you were looking at cancel rates, you're looking at revenue growth, like I've got to assume, does that also factor into, you know, quality of earnings? Because to me, yeah, it'd be great if I'm doing 4 million in profit, but if my cancer rate is 40%, that's got to have an impact, right? Is that taken into account as well?
0: It is. And that's why we look at three years worth of data. And we look at things like revenue by service by month. And that's why we, we push a lot for that monthly detail because you're, revenue profile or your customer profile for the fiscal year of 22 may be different than what you've seen in January February or March of 2023. so we're looking at those details and if we see a drop off in revenue because of customer cancellations or, or something to that extent you know we'll ask about it so okay. that is why we look at more than one year and we don't just look at the current month and run rate right it forward we're looking at that historical performance so that we can see that trend right. now on the flip side we're going to look at anything that we see during our historical period our clients are going to think about the growth potential of that company. And that's where the multiple comes into play. We think under our ownership, we can do X, Y, and Z. We can put in these capital infusions and grow this in this way. And that's why we're going to put a five times multiple or a 10 times multiple on it.
3: That's usually how we summarize in our, when you think about the outcome, right? There's usually a QE table. And then what we have uh, underneath it is what we call an other considerations table. And that's exactly where these items um, will show up. Similar to that, if we see that the maintenance expense is lower than the industry standards, it's something where we probably wouldn't really adjust for it. But we would call it out to our client and say, hey, you know, typically we see X in the industry, they are X percentage below that just for your interest, there might be some sort of, you know, maintenance, uh, backlog.
1: Gotcha. Where do you get the industry data? Is it just your experience because you've done a number of transactions or is there, you go to Robert Morris, you go to our study? Where, where do you get that?
3: Then I'd say the mo- most of it is from our experience. I mean, we've been in the industry for quite a while. We've done, uh, by now, I think 50 plus deals or so, uh, we listen to podcasts. Uh, there are some uh, on the internet, which are really informative. Uh, to see what what the industry um, you know um, speaks about that, but really it's it's the number of deals we've done, and also in conversations with clients, right? What's the expectation, and compared to what you see, and there might not, there might be a reason why certain companies have a lower percentage spent than others.
1: So when you give a uh, when when you talk about well, uh, you know that, that 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 below the line, here's what you can do to improve. Do they? give you here's what we think we can do and then you quantify it or do you just go in and say hey based on what we've seen here's what you need to do
3: I would say we typically give them a rough estimate where we think it should have been and then obviously lay out the reasons why it's not there and then really it's a conversation um depending on the reason why I mean As an example, right, when we talk about chemical costs, we need to really differentiate um, the percentage of termite revenue versus uh, call it normal pest revenue, right? So it really depends on the situation, on the type of business. We've had situations where, for example, the gross margin was relatively low. We were just wondering why, and it turned out that part of the business were doing lawn services. They typically have a little bit of a lower margin than the pest control businesses, right? Down here in Florida, we see that a lot, that they have these combined. these kind of things, they, they come up in diligence. And again, it's something we just outline to our client and see what they think about it. And one of the most important things here is again, the communication early on, right? So we don't wait until like three weeks, four weeks down the road and tell them in the report, hey, you know, we found X, Y, Z. If something like that comes up, we'll usually send a quick email to the client and notifying them, hey, we discovered X, Y, Z. Do you still want to pursue? Do you want to speak to the sellers first or how should we think about it?
0: And all that goes back to one of the most important things, which is expectations versus reality. And it's important for a buyer to set those expectations properly with, uh, or the seller to set those expectations properly with the buyer so that when we go in, it all checks out. You know, if if the buyer is excited about this business because it's 80% termite, and then we go in and it's 80% mosquito, we're going to pick up the phone and call them. That's going to stall the deal. And so you want to make sure that when you're giving those stats up front there's there's um, going to be consistent with what we see when we dig in.
1: So when I, uh, way back when, when I was an auditor, we worked off a checklist and uh, I noticed that you uh, all work off a of checklists as well. Who devises those checklists and, um, you know, how much variation is there deal to deal?
3: Yeah, I would say the checklist really is our scope of work and how we derived it is, um, really based on our experience and as working as an advisor in the pest control industry, the more deals you work on, the more you see and the you know more nuances you discover in the end. And that's how we basically update our college checklist from deal to deal. As an example, I remember one of the first deals we did, we looked at the personnel costs and they seemed unreasonably low. And so in the kickoff call, these kind of things we ask early on and it turned out that the seller had multiple businesses, which we quite often see. And part of the personnel costs were recorded on a different profit and loss statement. So that's something where we hadn't included that before on our call it checklist. And that's something we then you know, add from deal to deal. Whenever we, know, we learn some new, any new ones comes up, that really makes it on that list. And then I would say from a variation perspective, We do all of the procedures on our deals. What really varies is the focus areas. So for example, uh, as we said before, when we look at a termite business, right? We focus much more on warranty periods versus when we have a sole, um, you know, mosquito business. Uh, Things like that are are important um, when we determine what, what are really the key diligence areas we wanna focus on.
1: So as far as, so when I was an auditor, there was a whole concept of materiality. How does that work in expanding your, uh, you know, your, your, your diligence work and, and how do you determine that materiality?
3: We typically don't have a set materiality like auditors have, right? It's typically by the auditors calculated, you have the threshold. Uh, we don't really do this. Uh, we look at the numbers and see what's reasonable. So if a company has a ten million, you know, revenue and three million of EBITDA, we're not going to ask them about five thousand dollars. But then we look usually how we determine it. We look at trends month over month and see what sticks out on a monthly basis, and that's really where we look to, you know, inquire about certain areas.
0: And one thing that's really different from an audit is that back to the multiple concept. Because if there's a $100,000 difference we're asking about, that becomes a million dollars of value of the company. So we we do have to be a little bit more meticulous than maybe auditing or sampling in an audit, because something that may seem small could have a very large impact, depending on what that multiple is, because any difference is going to be multiplied by a lot, so. It, it it is an that's, interesting concept to think about.
1: It, it's very important, right? A hundred thousand dollars. Okay, well, it's not that much, but if you're, it's a ten multiple. That's a million dollars a purchase price, and 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 so so that is important. So, what is this report that you uh, uh, give to your clients? What? How many pages is it? How does it? You know, what 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 does it look like?
0: I would say, on average, the report is probably 30 pages for the pest control industry. It's going to differ depending on the industry, that scope of work Ilka was talking about. Sometimes we go into a lot more depth or our clients ask us to, to push and probe on certain things that they want to see in the deliverable as well. But typically I would say 30, maybe 40 pages of a report. That's going to give them the EBITDA portion of that valuation. It's also going to point out operational changes like Ilka was saying in the other oper- other earnings consideration section. Uh, it's going to give them some key inputs they need for the purchase agreement. So there's a couple of things they grab from that. But in addition to the report, we also give them an Excel data book. And that is really where a lot more value can come from. You know, obviously the key findings are important. We're going to have conversations about those throughout the deal, as Ilka mentioned. But the data book can often give a buyer a template for how to monitor performance going forward. So it's got the monthly recast P&L in it, it's got the monthly revenue by service code, it's got all these schedules in it that they can then use going forward and populate with the future months post acquisition. And that can be a really helpful tool. And it, it just shows how somebody like us three or four years from now may look at that business and how they want to you know, monitor and track those things.
1: And if you, uh, you know, obviously you present the data, do, do any of your clients ask you for conclusions or no, That we just you give them the data that they ever say, well, what do you think?
0: Yeah. So the conclusions are in the report. We'll write basically the the, the findings that we have and what that means to EBITDA, what that means to the analysis, what that may mean to their investment decision. But we'll always have a a walkthrough call where we'll then talk through the report, answer any questions they have. And that may be a time where they want us to to probe on something else or there's an open item in our report and they say, hey, we really need that closed. Can you follow up with, with the sellers on that one? Or, hey, can you give Dan a call and see if he can get this information for us? So we will also have a conversation around that, and there may be some topics that come up through that that they want us to dig on further. But ultimately, that report does help them, along with you know other diligence streams and reports they give them, to to make that investment decision.
1: We don't give them an opinion buy or don't buy, right? You just present the data, and right. That's what I was right. going to yeah. ask.
2: Is there like a report card where you say it's, it's a buy, right? It's You're it? The, yeah, you know, Or no, like run, you know, like Jim yeah. Cramer moment. I don't know, but
3: yeah. <laughs> we want to stay away from that because it it right. oh, ultimately yeah. depends also like what is your long-term strategy. And a lot mm-hmm. of things really depend on, you know, is this an add-on? Is it a platform? What's my strategic goal with this? I mean, we've seen acquisitions, which when you looked at the financials, it, basically it didn't make any sense to buy that company but for them it was a strategic decision to invest in a certain area where they wanted to start their buy and build strategy and they had to start with a platform and they you know found only that one platform so they went with it so that's really something the buyer usually determines by themselves and we try to really give them all the information needed so um, they know what they are getting
0: into And it may be synergies too with other companies they own, that may be a really key market. They may know that that market is prime for a price increase. There's so many different elements that are on top of what we do that we can't give that A, B, C, fail, grading, but we just give them the information for them to then go plug it into what what they're focused on.
1: So in your experience, what is a top-notch, best-in-class pest control company look like?
3: Well, I would say a top-notch seller really understands their business. And what I mean by that is not just operationally, but really also the underlying financials on the profitability. Um, they should be prepared. So sometimes it's helpful if they involve some outside help, like your company, Dan, where um, it's easier for them to you know, walk through the steps they need to um, in order for the preparation before we come in from the, from the buy side. The other most uh, important thing is is with regards to the requests, like we said before, typically we send an information request list uh, and give them about a week or two, however long they need to prepare the data. That data is obviously key uh, to being good quality and really determines the length and the complexity of the diligence work we then do. Um, So financial reporting, the quality is, is really key for us. And then another thing which is super helpful is if they use the industry-specific ERP systems like PestPack and PestRoutes, that, that really facilitates the data exchange for us. We've had a lot of situations where the uh, sellers would grant us remote access to the systems. So we can actually go in and download most of the reports ourselves. That saves them the time and we know what we get. Um, so that that really are, I'd say, the, the key areas.
2: So when you say and someone just- understands the financials, you mean like the drivers of the financials for the business or are you more just like they understand what the business is doing does that does that make sense what i'm asking cuz it's kind of two yeah really things. the yeah.
3: the drivers of the financials right i mean yeah. for example um, there is a difference in profitability when you look at termite versus mosquito versus pest right so the composition of revenue really determines the profitability and right. knowing what has happened in the business like claire said before we're looking at three years so if we've had situations where um, a buyer wasn't sure about what had happened last year because the accountant they were using had changed. So it was very difficult to get to answers why certain things changed, whether revenue went up or down or fluctuations in gross margin. So this is really the things where when we think about our management meeting, we, we hold with them, we send them an Excel pack and we ask questions, why did gross margin increase? What was the other income in this month so this is really the the preparation we we look for that they know what happened in these months for us to then determine should this be a recurring you know part of ebitda or should we adjust it out yeah
1: Yeah. so if they if if they change accountants twice during the three years is that a red flag or is that just what uh what do you make of that or or even changing accountants where you can't pull the information because that firm is not available. What, 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 what you know, what, what kind of conclusions do you draw from that?
3: So I would say if they change accountants, it's not as much of an issue. Um, we typically get to the questions; it will just take longer uh, for us to get to where we need to be. If there is really no historical data, other than call it the last twelve months, that's something where we go back to our clients and tell them, look, I mean. It's a snapshot in time. It's a year. When we think about COVID, right? If you take one of the COVID years, a lot of pest control companies skyrocketed their revenues, right? When we think about the Hamptons, everyone stayed home. Everyone all of a sudden saw this roach, you know, crawling up the floor before they said, I don't have any pests. I don't need anything, right? And all of a sudden, uh, revenue skyrocketed. Um, so, really doing a, a valuation based on one year data is very limited. And again, it's something where, <clears throat> We typically don't decide for our client. We just lay it out to them, and they make the the decision.
1: Donnie, yes, this next question because this is.
2: Uh... <laughs> well, oh, so you're going to give me the dirty work? Is that is that what? That's right. Oh, so the good. next question for our audience. Well, Yelka did by that way. to me
0: when she gave. and yeah. yeah. she yes. Took the top notch. <laughs> yeah. So the the dirty work
2: here is that we. So we just talked about, you know, a, a top notch seller someone who understands the drivers of the financials. And has really, really good data, meaning their CRM squared away and stuff like that. The next question on our little list here is what does a dog look like? Like, what is a company that's just, you know, a dumpster fire? And of course, none of us, I'm sure none of our listeners either would ever fall into this category, but let's just talk through what that looks like.
1: Or a
0: yeah.
2: deal that
1: fell apart. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: So, I mean, every engagement is different. Uh, there are things that you might think would be a dog but end up not being and vice versa. It's going to be very dependent on the sellers, the buyers, et cetera. That being said, here are some of the the challenges we experience and, and how to avoid falling into those. So the first one, which is a little bit of a joke, but, you know, don't sign a, a letter of intent and then decide to take a month long vacation. <laughs> that happens like more often than, than you would think. Um, uh-huh. And maybe, I've you know, the, great. <laughs> yeah. just like, that. like I signed it, I'm going to get that money. I'm smooth sailing. I'm going to go spend some of it, you know, yeah. hang around yeah. for a little bit, go through the process, you know, know, know what that looks like. Um, maybe give your external accountant a call. If you use one, make sure they're going to be around or someone from their office um, because you know, the longer it takes for a process to start, the deal fatigue is just going to set in so much faster. So if we can do the kickoff and start getting the data quickly, it will be less painful for, for the sellers, which will be good, um, you know, to the extent it starts to drag on and we send all our follow-up emails, they start to get irritated by us, you know, it's a, the it's a whole process. And so if if you don't go on vacation and you're around, that's, that's a big plus. Um, so that's one I would say, the the biggest thing from a financial perspective is that you've done monthly bank reconciliations. And and I'll explain a little bit why that's important. You know, what that does is it says, the bank, this third-party institution has given us these statements. They've represented what your cash receipts and your cash disbursements were. You doing the bank rec helps ensure that both of those receipts and disbursements are somewhere in your financials. So without that, there's the risk that there's been cash going out the door that hasn't been recorded as an expense or cash coming in the door that hasn't been recorded as revenue. And obviously there's balance sheet movements too if if there's accrual accounting involved, but that is just such an important check to have on a monthly basis or at least quarterly to, to help us get comfort that, everything that's going in and out from a cash perspective is somewhere in those financials. We may not agree on where it is, you know, we may say oh this something on the balance sheet related to payroll taxes that really should have been hitting the P&L, but at least it's in there and and that gives us a big, you know, check and that's like a, a big green light to us. Okay, this is good. They've they've been savvy with their finances. They know that they need to do these bank recs and they do them or a third party accountant does them, but somebody's doing them on a consistent basis. And without that, it's just so much more difficult to prove the financial you know, stability of a company because there's just you know, a gray area that we can still look at the bank statements themselves and try to prove it out and do, kind of retroactively look at it. But if that's already in place, that's just a huge step in the right direction.
2: So I'm going to dig a little more on this question because I've got to believe that most deals fall apart because of differences, maybe in expectations, right? Maybe a buyer is expecting to They put an offer in because they're expecting one thing, and the seller believes the business is something else, and their expectation is a little different. And obviously, you guys are the ones that kind of try to—I don't want to say reconcile the two, but show the reality, right, as to whatever that is. And so, I've got to believe there's pieces in showing that reality where people disagree on what value really is. So I'm just—I guess the, the the part I want to dig in on is what are some common things where you see maybe a seller is not on the same page as a buyer in terms of value. Does that make sense, what I'm asking? Yep,
0: definitely. So some things are pretty cut and dry, like a PPP loan income. If you received a PPP loan and it was forgiven and you recorded income from that, all parties are going to agree that's non-recurring. Yep. Take that out of EBITDA. Yep. There... Maybe disagreements around the financial impacts of operational changes. For example, if a company has gone through and converted their customers that were previously liquid conventional termite treatments to bait station treatments, and they had this one-time cost to install those bait station treatments, they may say, great, that's a one-time cost, pull it out of EBITDA. On a go-forward basis, when we have new customers, they'll just get the baiting stations up front. While true, there may be other impacts to the financials. So for example, on a go forward basis, the cost profile of monitoring those bait stations and putting the, you know, bait in them or checking in on them may change compared to what you might've had from a liquid termite treatment. And that's where the gray areas can start to set in and there can be differences in, in how people view the business. Another area I would say is, you know, a lot of times if a seller is not in charge of the financial accounting, they're outsourcing that, they may not realize where their owner discretionary spend is being put in, in the general ledger. So they may say, Oh, I spent, you know, a hundred thousand dollars last year on, um, you know, paying, a yeah, a swimming pool. And they say, you got to take that out of EBITDA or you got to, you know, increase my EBITDA for that. And we look at it and that is something that's been put on the balance sheet as a fixed asset. So it's not- I'm sure
2: you've never seen that.
1: I, I've never seen <laughs> that. Or, or, no, that was it's just a fictional- yeah, it's a fictional, fictional right? it has been, been distributed through equity. We have a lot of-, uh, exactly. Uh, of exactly. Sellers yeah, exactly. who will say, well, I took this out of the company that has to be taken out of it at income, but it's not, it, it just, it's a distribution. So, so you brought up a concept which uh, is near and dear to my heart called deal fatigue. Can mm-hmm. you explain that?
0: <laughs> yeah, we, we're always looking out for that. So we're going to have a lot of questions. We're going to send a lot of emails in a, in a perfect world. We would get our requests. We'd process them. We would send, you know, the pack over. The sellers would look over it, prepare for the call. We'd have one, two hour call. And we'd be done. Almost never happens because there's always things that come up that, you know, oh, well, got to go ask the external accountant for this. Or we have a question that we didn't originally have, but because of the way it was answered, we have a follow-up question. So as that continues over a couple of weeks, sellers are going to get tired of the process, right? They're trying to run a business. We're asking all these questions. They're very specific. Uh, And so we do everything that we can to prevent that. One of the big things that we do is make sure we have the industry expertise. So a seller doesn't have to go back and explain to us what a termite bait station is. They don't have to explain to us what fumigation services are. We just know those things. So we can skip those kinds of questions that can help with the deal fatigue quite a bit. Um, the other thing that we'll do is just stay organized and and try to kind of stay on them. And, you know, to the extent they're not going on vacation for two weeks to France or wherever it may be, you know, if they can stay in communication with us, you know, whether they want to call us and and check in with us every other day, whatever it may be that helps them feel like they're making progress, um, can be really helpful too. But we try to look out for signs for that, but it is common and it does happen mostly because. It's a new process to a seller. They may have never sold a business before. They're trying to run a business while also selling it, which can be just tiring.
2: but I, I would say okay. here, Dan, for you and and then, I mean, I guess we can all agree here. I've done a number of deals and not not you know facilitating, but I can tell you from a buyer's or seller's perspective, it's not you guys that drive me crazy. It's the freaking attorneys that drive me nuts. So, like, that's the stuff that just I want to, you know. By the time I get to right. the end of a deal, I just want to kill them, right? And it's usually right. I can tell you almost every single deal I've ever done, it's always ended with a conference call with all attorneys, and like, we're doing this or we're not doing this, and that's that, right? You just so I get so frustrated because it's like, like you talk about the, the deal fatigue, and you know, we're off on four different tangents that something could potentially happen, and then attorneys are battling out anyway. So, yes. Well, it's kind it of interesting.
1: Yeah, go ahead.
3: Well, I just want to say it it takes a lot of time, but it's also one of the most important things when we think about it, right? The SPA or APA, so the purchase agreement. And um, that's also something we look at for our clients, right? So we look at the wording in there. We look at certain areas, definitions, whether it's EBITDA, whether it's indebtedness, cash, and so on, and really make sure before the document gets signed that everyone is on the same page and the the contract reflects what was agreed verbally because quite often and what you really want to avoid is then by the time of closing people interpret the wordings differently and and you get into a dispute
1: what about so uh what 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 i find anyway is that the emotion starts to build and then you know it 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 really everybody's really engaged at the end and then the deal closes and it falls off a cliff and we're on to the next deal. How, how do you deal with that? Is that that you know a buyer just you know wants to take a nap? But uh, you, you know you're working on many deals at once, right? So
0: well, we are used to it. Yeah, that's and that's the thing. So. A seller, it's it's new to them, so they're ready to take the nap and, and be done with it at the end of it. But you know, this is what Ilka and I do for a living, and and we do it all the time, and we're used to that kind of pace and you, you, you finish something and it's on to the next one, you're ready for the next project. And um, that's, what's been great too. And, you know, Dan, you've been on several calls with us. You probably recognize similar names we have a team of 10, 10 or so people that we've trained in this pest control space and, and they love it too. They're like, all right, what's the next one? And they love to know what's the project going to be called. And, you know, they get kind of excited about it too. So we're all very action oriented project oriented people. That's why we're drawn to this type of work.
3: And also I would say, I mean, the the communication is really important. And that's why we, like we said at the beginning, we do this kickoff call and it's not just a call for us to get information, but really for them to get to know us. We walk them through the process. We give them that level of comfort. We're just humans. We're asking questions. If they can't answer a question, it's not a big deal. We'll send a follow-up summary of things, right? It's totally fine to not be 100% prepared for a call. Um, And with that, I feel like that call Gives a lot of the sellers the comfort, just because I mean, for them, if you think about it, it's their first time and probably also their only time, right? They've they've sold something and it's it's surely overwhelming. So it was when I did my first deal.
1: Mm-hmm. 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 So so tell us about uh, when a company should hire somebody like you or bring the due diligence in-house is it a matter of expertise is it the size of the deal what you know we we work with a bunch of strategics that uh you know that 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 have their own teams that know the business real well we work with a bunch of private equity firms who really don't know the industry that well and probably rely on consultants like you what when's the best time to 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 bring it in-house and what kind of expertise do you need to do that
3: yeah, I'd say it's really a cost versus benefit situation, right? When, when we think about if you buy a house, right, you can do the inspection yourself. You can look around and try and see if there's any upside or any you know, problems with the house. But then if you hire someone who does this on a daily basis, they are very likely in a shorter time period, find everything you'd want to know. The other question is really, do you have internal resources available? They're obviously cheaper. Um, But do you have these internal uh, resources available who will do the deal in the same time, you know, as a third party would do it, would ask the right question and really find the key deal issues. And that really depends on, like you said, what kind of buyer or seller is out there. They might or might not have these resources. Um, What I'd always say is like what you should avoid is to save on the fees and overpay ultimately on the purchase price, right? It's kind of the better safe than sorry question um, where I'd say if it's a really small business call it less than a million in revenue, your exposure just because of the size from a valuation perspective is not as big. But think about it, like Claire said before, EBITDA times 10, that's what you're paying. So how is that standing in relation to the fees you're actually paying for? For diligence,
2: I'd say it's like an accountant justifying their fees. Wouldn't you say that, Dan?
3: Uh, I, no, I thought uh-oh. I did a pretty good job with it, though. I, no, I thought you. I thought you did a great
1: job with it. As, as, you know, usually we're on opposite sides, but this time we're on the same side. But uh, so, so that that's an interesting. So, a lot of these uh, PE firms and even the strategics on the bigger deals, they'll bring in a big four accounting firm or a second tier accounting firm. What is it that A&M offers over an accounting firm in terms of the diligence? I mean, both of you, I think both of you are CPAs, right? So so what is it that um, you know, what is it that the Alvarez Marcel offers as opposed to EY or a Deloitte or somebody like that?
0: Yeah. So so everyone in our financial diligence group that that does what Ilk and I do has an accounting background, but Alvarez and Marcel operates differently because we have this operational heritage to our company. So because of that, we're we're very results action oriented. You know, we, we move quickly, we pick up the phone, we call, we have the ability to put ourselves in our client's shoes. So rather than just churn and burn a Q of you e report, spit it out, send it, move on to the next, we're thinking... What's their investment thesis? We'll ask those questions up front. What what matters to you about this business? What are you excited about? What are you concerned about? And then we'll take that and tailor our approach based on that. Make sure we're communicating if any of those things come up seem to be different or if there's red flags as a result. So that putting ourselves in in their shoes and saying what can we do to make sure they're successful investors it is really you know the core of our uh, values and how how we operate. Uh, making sure through all of that that we can be those relationship-driven, trusted advisors of theirs, that they feel comfortable calling us with questions. They feel comfortable asking our opinion for things. You know, They just see us as a, as a partnership rather than just an advisor that checks the box, sends them what they need for their investment committee, and, and moves on. So we try to stay integrated. Tilka's point, we're, we're reading the purchase agreements. We go all the way through the very end of the deal. We check in with them just to make sure everything is going smoothly. We want to know if something doesn't work out, why it didn't work out you know, we check in on the portfolios post-transaction. Hey, a year from now, you bought this company a year ago. How's it doing? What does that inform about your investment thesis going forward? Um, so all of that, you know, it is kind of at the core of a and And then specific to pest control, Ilka and I, you know, we lead this senior-led consistent team that has this just deep subject matter expertise. Everyone on our team has done at least five, some, you know, dozens of, of pest control deals so that they have that baseline knowledge. And then Ilka or I are, are going to be on every call. So we're not going to leave it to somebody who's just one year out of college to lead the whole thing. Uh, we're going to be on, we're going to be supervising, we're going to make sure that everything's going as planned, that it's consistent with the, the quality that we, you know, the high quality we always expect. So we're going to be monitoring that and, and making sure that those senior led consistent teams are there on every deal we do in this industry.
2: So Ilka, Claire, this has been fantastic. Very informative for our listeners. I want to thank you for coming on. Um, and just for our listeners, just to recap here, make sure you got clean data make sure your financials are clean. Do your bank recs and uh, make sure <laughs> that you understand what's driving the financials. And, and if you get an LOI, that's absolutely a ticket to go take a big four-month vacation and just and I'm joking <laughs> do not do that <laughs> but no i i do i really appreciate you guys this time this has been very insightful and i took a ton of notes i'm sure most of our listeners did as well i think it's always great to understand when we do and, and like i said everyone will get to this point at some point kind of like what to know what to expect and then how do you how do you position yourself so that it's a pretty painless process so dan anything to add before we finish out here
1: no, no, lady. Is there anything that that you want to add? Is there anything that we haven't asked that we should have?
3: Yeah, I think maybe just to wrap up in terms of why pest control is such an in, interesting industry and why we have podcasts about it. I, I get that question all the time when I when I tell people that one of my focus areas is pest control. They're like, it's kind of like, why? Why would you do that? I think the pest control um, industry is is really interesting and and really interesting for. Uh, investors uh, because of its nature, right? The recurring revenue piece. When times were tough, as I said, during COVID, I mean, pest control was going through the roof. So really making recurring good profits. And then I'd say what's driving the market really is this buy and build strategy, right? The opportunity of, of um, buying smaller add-ons and then consolidating them and getting the synergies out of that. So really, really an interesting market we're in and I'm looking forward to the next years. I think there's going to be a lot of challenges coming up and a lot of opportunities. Um, Yeah.
1: Right. I think one of the, uh, so when I left Deloitte, I told one of the partners I was going into pest control and you should have seen the look on his face.
2: <laughs> oh, I got a better one than that. You should have saw my in-laws when I told him that. <laughs> <laughs> All righty, it was that. Hey. Thank you guys for coming out. And just a reminder, all the resources and topics that we talked about today and on all of our podcasts are available on pmpindustryinsider.com. Just take a look under the show notes. And with that, as always, we appreciate any kind of ratings and reviews that you can give us and complaints go to Dan. And with that, we're out. We'll talk to you next time. You all take care now. Bye-bye. Thank you, so much. you.
3: Bye-bye.